Live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome to the show this evening. Thank you. You're on the road to recovery with Yona Bud here on 640 Toronto. I'm in the studio with Heather and Natasha, and we're so glad that you could join us. If you want to play with us here tonight, you can give us a call when it's appropriate, 416-870-6400, and we'd love to talk to you. You know, I think we have to do a better job of taking care of each other. I've said it before on other shows. If you've been hearing me over the years on this network, other networks, I've been saying it for a long time. We need to do a better job of taking care of ourselves, and we're not. Right. We're talking about walking by people who aren't in a good spot on the street or not helping the quote unquote, you know, older people across the street like we used to when we were younger, at least when I was younger, that was something you were taught opening the door for people, making sure people get in ahead of us if they're a little more frail than we are. We're not doing a great job of it, my friends. And I love you. You're the greatest audience ever. And I would consider you part of my certainly part of my broadcast family, but we're not doing a great job of it. We're not, you know, we're not stopping to make sure that. Our brothers and sisters are okay. We're not stopping to make sure that someone who might be experiencing some difficult mental health at the moment, you know, like I walked by a woman the other day um, outside of a mall and she was crying. And, you know, my natural thing, because it's me, I walked over and said, hey, you know, I I hate to bother you and I won't intrude, but are you okay? And then she started crying and telling me about a situation and we chatted for a little bit. I gave her some recommendations of who she could call. It was a, something that social services could probably help with, but, you know, and I felt better. She thanked me. Um, I think in another time might, we might've even hugged uh, if it wasn't so pandemic-y out there, but um, you know, she, she, uh, she really appreciated the, that I asked and I felt really good about asking. And, you know, how many of us do that? How many of us stop when we see someone suffering, we see somebody in discomfort, when we see somebody who's sad, when we see somebody who's obviously in a bad spot. Uh, one of my boys, one of my children was telling me, you know, he was at a, at a fast food restaurant uh, last week and uh, there was a fellow in front of him, an older man, and uh, he was struggling to find his wallet, couldn't find his wallet. He had a bunch of food on his on his tray and was really kind of starting to panic. So my son paid the seven dollars and sixty three cents for whatever the guy bought. And, you know, the guy was so appreciative and wanted to get a hold of my son. Can I send it back to you? And he's like, no, 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 this is great. And my son was like on a high for like two days. Right. So um, we do well, not just for others, but for ourselves when we help. It makes us feel better. We do better. We do better from a mental health perspective. We do better in terms of our spiritual health. We do better just in terms of feeling good. And we're all different, right? We all look at life differently. And, you know, if I, I'm kind of reflecting on the story in the, recently about the woman who was pushed off the subway platform at, at Bloor and Young. Um, and, you know, the, the, the people standing by, I'm not sure they could have done something, couldn't have done something, but no one moved. If you saw the video, none of the people on the platform moved either towards the person pushed or the, towards the person doing the pushing. The woman herself, she survived the fall. Uh, her name is Shamsa Al-Balushi. And she, uh, although that fall broke her ribs, she was able to pin herself up against the lip of the platform, escaping being crushed to death by oncoming train. Okay. So there's enough space apparently under the platform to save yourself from an oncoming train. I, I, I can't imagine it. I'm not sure I would have had the, you know, the presence of mind to do that if I was in that situation, but she did. And what's really incredible is that two days later, she was seen on that same platform taking the subway for a medical appointment. 
And people find that the writer of this article that we're referring to here found that that was amazing and thrilling. Maybe we could all cultivate that kind of courage to step up after something terrible happens to us. Nothing that she says, um, I'm, I, she described the moment. I'm terrified. She said the way I felt that was the way I was pushed. It's just so crazy. Next thing I'm flying, I'm under the track. She said she then rolled away from the train. Something many of us, like I said, may not have had the, the, uh, you know, being a presence of mind or being alert enough to do it. I was screaming in pain. I felt like I was going to die. The, you know, she's still in pain as, as this article goes on. Uh, but there have been no murders, apparently. We talked about uh, people who talked to the TTC. article goes on. The, the, the writer was talking to the TTC. Apparently, there's very few of these, uh, quote-unquote, uh, attacks or murders, uh, shoving people off the platforms. Last I think last one was in 2018. Uh, but somebody says that in 1997, uh, there was a there was a one. And, you know, I, I it's hard to believe that with the open platform structure that more people aren't hurt or pushed or somehow assaulted in some way, shape or form. But, you know, there was another situation where two guys were shot, you know, one outside of Sherburne subway, another guy outside of Bayview subway. You know, there were people around. Where were they? And what do you do? Do you run and hide? Sure. If there's gunshots, the first thing you're going to do is run and hide. But we need to do a better job, my friends, of looking after one another. We need to do a better job of walking by the people who are desperate and helping them with a leg up in some way. And if it's a loony or a toonie you can throw their way, regardless if your concern is, you know, people tell me all the time, you know, Yona, I don't give money to the homeless because they're all going to use it, put it, spend it on alcohol and drugs and not good things. So my answer is, okay, so hang on. So you want to be able to give help to somebody, but you want to tell them what to do with it too? I don't think that's our job. I think you give to give and what people do with it, they do with it. And, you know, if you can, you know, if, uh, what I do is I give out food vouchers. So Tim Hortons vouchers, McDonald's vouchers, uh, Swiss LA has vouchers, vouchers for like meal vouchers, single meal vouchers. You can give those out, right? So at least somebody can eat if you're really concerned. But that takes work. It takes forethought, forethought and you have to have a mindset that you're going to be out there trying to make somebody's life a little bit better today. You've got to be out there trying to do something nice for someone and with the forethought that goes into it so you can buy the necessary coupons or discount cards or you know, whatever to provide someone with a, a, an assurance at least that they're likely to use it for something good and not for something bad. Again, you give to give. You don't give to make a choice of what people do with it. You know what? But we are so smug as Canadians. We're so, we're so restrained we're, you know, and, and we're overly courteous, people would say but not to the people who seem to be most at risk. You know, we, we tend to look at those sleeping on the street or under the bridge as, you know, kind of a blemish on our society and, oh, how disgusting it is that all these homeless people are out there living on the streets and, you know, it just looks awful. Hello, they're homeless. It's where they live on the street. I have a young man who was, you know, asked to leave his, his family home a week or two ago because of uh, his uh, drug and, uh, and uh, at-risk behavior, ended up going to a, to a, um, to a uh, shelter, the, the Bond Hotel shelter in downtown Toronto. When he wasn't there an hour and a half and he was robbed for everything he had. Now, he was an idiot. He brought his laptop. He brought his cell phone. He was wearing new running shoes. He had a wallet with cash in it. Uh, you know, he had a, a, you know, $200 set of headphones. Like, you don't go to a shelter with that stuff. But anyway, he lost everything and is now uh, back home and, you know, quote, unquote, learned my lesson. We'll see. But, you know, it's not people don't go to shelters for a reason. They don't go to shelters because they don't feel safe there. 
You know, if you talk to homeless people, they often talk about, you know, they don't want to come inside. They don't want you to give them a room. They don't want you to pay for a hotel for a week. For the most part, some do. Many don't. They prefer the freedom of being outside. They prefer the freedom of not having to lock a door, check a door, be behind the door. Some people have issues with being closed in. So any kind of in, inside structure for them isn't going to work. What happens to them? We need to help them. We need to do a better job for somebody who just doesn't fit the mold of, you know, here's, here's a, a shelter, a rooming house or something, or here's a, pay you for an apartment. They don't want to go. So you have to meet them where they are. And unfortunately, where they are is homeless. So do a better job. If you're walking by people and you can give them a toonie or a loonie, I'm not suggesting you, you dig deep, 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 but a loonie or a toonie, if everybody does that, they'll have enough to eat, drink, or do whatever they need to do to get through the day. And trust me, if you have a drug addiction issue or an alcohol addiction issue or any other kind of, of at-risk behavior issue, like gambling, sexting, texting, eating disorders, all that stuff, sometimes we just can't make the right choice. Sometimes people like me and others that suffer with ADD, OCD, anxiety disorder, which is my trifecta, you know, sometimes we just can't make the right choice. Sometimes we can't, you know, get our heads clear enough to do the right thing. So we are where we are. And it's difficult for us to, as patients, as people suffering with these ailments, it's difficult for us to do what you think we should do for those that don't suffer with those ailments. And, you know, why can't they just stop doing it? Why can't they do this instead? So I'm worried about the quality of people uh, who decide to aim for uh, public office now, right? Because women, New Canadians, and people specific with a specific, ex specific expertise, quite reasonable. But there's a low level targeted at, at now at this public service. There's not that many people that with great substance that are trying to make the public service thing work. So we need to do a better job, help one another, be better friends, and better neighbors, and uh, life will be good for all of us. When we come back, we got more stuff to do. You're on the road to recovery. I'm your host, Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Okay, welcome back. You are on the Road to Recovery. I'm your host, Yona Bud. We are here on 640 Toronto. We'd love that you joined us. And um, lots, of, you know, lots of stuff to share tonight. Lots of stuff going on. Back to the story, just following up from the opening a little bit. Back to the story about the violence on the TTC. It's becoming an issue for a lot of people. There's a, there's a lot of people, a lot of kids, as a matter of fact, a lot of parents who have concerns now about their kids taking <clears throat> the subway to work and, uh, or to school, excuse me. And, you know, it's impacting uh, a lot of uh, changes and choices in the house in terms of driving kids to school and uh, carpooling and so on. <clears throat> but if you're a Toronto transit rider, um, recent events make you nostalgic for a time when the most you had to fear on a TTC platform was an announcement of, uh, you know, shuttle buses are on the way, then you know that there's a problem with the subway, right? But the news about Toronto's transit agency um, has a lot more to offer in the Department of um, Nightmarish Days these days. On Sunday night, around 9 o'clock, a woman pushed another, and this is uh, back a week or so, pushed a woman off the platform at Young and Bloor onto the subway tracks. You know the whole situation. She managed to save herself. But that's not all. Recent headlines involving the TTC make up a litany of nightmares. Last month, a 20-year-old international student, as you know, we said earlier in the show, was killed outside the Sherburne uh, subway station. Another fellow was killed outside the uh, Bayview uh, subway station. Um, and it's, it's becoming an issue. So needless to say, uh, according to the report, the TTC report, 
there were 350 common assaults on TTC bus platforms between 2016 and 2021, 477 common assaults on bus operators. That's a lot of physical interaction. And I get that there's lots of people traveling, but that's a lot of violence, if you ask me. 358 common assaults on the, on the, on the platforms themselves and, and bus just It's a big number. So needless to say, recent headlines about TTC involve crimes, both past and present. Very bad look for the TTC. It doesn't, doesn't look, make them look good. And the last thing an already nervous commuter needs to think about, in addition to the pandemic stuff, is whether they're going to be pushed off the platform. Now, whenever I take the subway, which isn't very often, I'll be honest with you, I stand against the wall until the bus, until the bus, until the train shows up. I never get on a bus, by the way. I'd rather take a walk or cab or something. But anyway, that's just me. TTC, you know, what are they doing about it? That's the thing. So despite the fact that I've spent the last few paragraphs of the writers going on to say, scrapping out the TTC and why writers are feeling that the violent crimes to their commutes um, make them nervous, well, in the case of passengers pushed from platforms, they're absolutely vanishingly rare, according to TTC spokesperson Stuart Green. Uh, there have been three incidents of someone being pushed in an apparent unprovoked attack, including this week's since 2009. I, I again, find that hard to believe, but OK. Um, but for comparison, the city, the city recorded more than 60 traffic deaths that last year alone. So you're, you're worse. I mean, I don't want to freak people out. And they're never going to drive again, but you stand a chance, a greater chance of getting hurt driving around than you do on a TTC platform or on a bus for that matter. Um, unfortunately, a city like Toronto, that's dangerously slow to improve pedestrian safety, taking transits often safer than walking because even walking today, you know, you take your life in your hands and, you know, we've had a lot of pedestrians hit many killed uh, in the last uh, number of years. It's, you know, unfortunately all too often uh, because drivers aren't paying attention. The roads may not be designed properly and so on. But when it comes to COVID-19, the TTC isn't by any means the worst place to be because if you're worried about things like germs and such, they're better to sit amongst a whole bunch of masked commuters, according to the writer. Um, and the doors, you know, the air is replaced every time the doors open and close. Same too for a bus. When the doors open and close, there's air circulation. You're probably better there than you are in most bars and restaurants, for that matter, uh, where people aren't masked. I'm not suggesting you don't go out and eat and do, but just be smart. So critics will argue that the TTC, the police, and the mayor could have prevented the attack. I don't think that's the case. Such incidents are the result of the lack of enforcement or supports for people struggling with mental health. So we're going to blame the system for the fact that this woman who, suffer, who suffers with mental health issues attacked the woman apparently unprovoked on the platform. I, I don't know. It, it's, it's a big stretch, right? So now it's up to the TTC. They've got to start to convince writers, people that are afraid to travel, that it's going to be okay. So what we're talking about here is everything needs to change. So when, when, when she was at the, you know, the victim was at the widest part of the platform, uh, there were lots of other people standing around. Uh, they had their backs turned. Others were masked facing uh, her, thus able to see what was happening. Uh, not entirely alone with her attacker, but not standing alone on the, she wasn't standing on the yellow stripe beside the edge, which is just a silly way to, silly place to stand anyway. As far as I'm concerned, you don't need to see the train coming. You can hear it. And who knows? Somebody could accidentally fall into you and push you onto the platform. Not necessarily. So, you know, there are safety measures in place, my friends. If you're on the bus, there's a safe place to sit. If you're on the TTC and the subway, safe place to sit. If you're on the platform, safe place to stand. You just need to stand there. And if your bus is, if your back is up against a wall or you're close to, uh, you know, the safe part of the platform, 
chances of somebody getting between you and the and the the subway tracks themselves are, are, are very minimal. So it's an it was an ordinary evening. She was minding her own business. The, the victim goes on to say, um, but it it she eventually this woman Edith Frain was arrested and attempted charged with attempted murder, um, and she was not in good shape. The woman deliberately looked in another direction, nothing to see. Um, you know, everybody was looking away from her. Um, Anyway, it's where we are right now is, you know, our hearts go to victims, of course, to the victim. But we have to understand that we live in a big city and, you know, things like TTC. Frankly, I'm more concerned without getting into it too much. I'm more concerned about any kind of terrorist activity or bio, bio, you know, bio uh, attacks, any kind of uh, uh, terror, you know, bioterrorism attack. I, I, I but I normally have anxiety issues and I go to places like that sometimes. But, you know, I get my head on straight. And I realized that's not the case. No, not sure about the attacker, attacker circumstances or state of mind, but you know that she, she wasn't, she wasn't doing well. And there were special con, there were zero special constables, zero TTC, no, no TTC constables available to be seen anywhere near that incident or on the, on the TCC subway. I don't know what they look like. I don't know if they're incognito or if they're undercover or whatever, but you don't really see them. So if the TTC won't protect the riders, then we have to come up with something like a platform safety barrier. The writer goes on to say, right. You might not. And if a person and it seems and the, the article goes also on to say here, which is kind of interesting that um, the victim was a small woman and, and violent people are typically cowards. So a, a tall, stocky person this says here, a tall, stocky man might not have gone over the edge so easily. So a small person might not have been able to push him such as this was this case. Therefore, small Asian women in particular, have been targeted in Canadian and American cities over the last number of years. It's disgusting. We need to do a better job. Last year, I was glad to see that these tent encampments were moved from public parks so that women and children could, could now return back to the parks. But, you know, I, I'm telling you, outside of Heather, this is Heather Malik who wrote the article. I, I just love her writing. She's an excellent reporter. Uh, she's with the Toronto Star. Um, so, so, you know, yeah, we got to clear the encampments, but we got to, you know, everyone needs a place, right? So kids need a place to play with their families and their friends in the park, but people who don't want to sleep inside also need a place to go. So I'm all for the right kind of outside facility and the right kind of potential encampment that could be safe and, uh, you know, without the fear of fires and explosions and things like that, right? Things blowing up like uh, propane heaters and so on. But you know what? The TTC, if you go back to that discussion, they didn't really have to protect the victim because they didn't think they had to. No one thought, no one ever thought that a New York-style attack would happen here in Toronto. Come on. If you're not thinking that way, then what's wrong with you? Toronto is, is, Toronto is the Canadian New York. This is where this stuff happens. The subway has been my favorite place, Heather goes on to say, Heather Malik, um, so wrestle, but it looks a little different, full of, um, full of differences, confusing signs, slippery tiles, you know, she's going on to basically rag on a bit about the TTC. I just think, you know what? Uh, it's a safe way to travel if you're safe. And it has, you know, that message goes out to everybody about everything that you do. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're careful about where you go, what you do, who you talk to, where you stand. Uh, you know, some people think it's cool to cut through a parking, a parking lot late at night when it's dark, you know, to, to get to another street faster than if you had to walk around. Well, if it's dark, and not well lit, and there's no one else there, and it's two o'clock in the morning. I don't care if you're a man, woman, or who you are. It's not a good place to go. It's not the place to be. So pay attention. Be more alert. Be more attentive to our neighbors and our friends. And pay attention to your own safety factors. 
whether it's making sure you wear a mask or whether it's the opportunity to wash your hands a million times a day or carry, do what I do, carry a small sanitizer in your pocket. Just be careful, be vigilant, pay attention. And I'm sure everyone will arrive alive, as they say on the TTC. Yonabud, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yonabud, only on 640 Toronto. Okay, and welcome back to the show. We've got a lot going on tonight, and uh, so glad you could join us. I know you have other choices, and we're glad you chose us. You're on the road to recovery. This is Yona Bud here on 640. Thanks uh, for hanging out. Um, you know, there's a lot going on in the world today, and especially when it relates to going back to work and staying at home and not staying at home. But a couple of weeks ago, we did a show about, you know, being uh, sick-shamed. I use the term sick-shamed when you're at home. Ah, come on, you can work it. You're at home. Can't be that sick. You can go through a file at least or something, can't you? So learning how to enough to learning to say, you know, no is really important to be able to, if you're sick and you're at home, don't work. Pretend like you have to go to the office. The fact that you can do it from your bed or your living room doesn't mean you should do it necessarily. And I'll tell you something, it's, it's, we're seeing it in the results of all kinds of statistical analysis. Uh, a good friend of ours, Paula Allen, she's going to join us here in a second. She's the global leader and senior vice president of research and total well-being at LifeWorks. LifeWorks released its monthly in, uh, health index uh, which reveals the mental health index score for Canadians is minus 10 and a half for March, an improvement from February. I don't know anything minus doesn't seem like it'd be any good for me. Anyway, this month, LifeWork explored Canadians' abilities to disconnect from work, finding that 28% of them are struggling and disconnecting, uh, struggling with, excuse me, disconnecting after regular work hours. Yeah, it's t- tough to turn it off when it's, you know, just going to flip a computer switch as opposed to actually get in your car or on a bus and come home. This indicates another long-term mental health risk for sure uh, for people, Canadians to consider and organizations and employers to talk about. LifeWork is, LifeWorks is also revealing that Canadian workers are ending their workday feeling mentally or physically exhausted paula allen and all of my days feeling like that help me <laughs> yeah well yeah this is definitely a situation that we need to pay attention to to johan i mean the whole idea of being able to disconnect is is important because we know we, we need a variety of experiences in our minds we need work and accomplishment but then we need fun we need white space we need creativity and if you can't disconnect from work then there's no room for those other things that are that are important to our well-being so um if you're just listening in you're uh, listening here to yona bud we are on road to recovery i have my guest here is paula allen from lifeworks um according to the highlights of uh this report, 27% of Canadians find it increasingly difficult to concentrate on their work, and 35% find it increasingly difficult to be motivated to do their work. So are we at a point, um, Paula, where people just are like getting out of bed, dreading that they have to get to the office or even get on their computer? Are we talking about this vir- in the virtual world, or are we talking about people that are physically getting up to go to work uh, outside of the home? I think, I think it's both, and I think it is because we're just exhausted. Yeah, you know, we've been through... But life has its ups and downs and strains and, and things that exhaust us, generally speaking. Um, but it also has the things that replenish us and the things that inspire us. And, and we've had an imbalance. You know, we've had more things that are exhausting, uh, just change and uncertainty and risk and all of those things, frustration. Uh, and, and, and that hasn't been, been good. We've also had our worlds become a little smaller. So the variety of things that gave us energy before, especially being with other people, has become less. 
So, you know, those two things working together, it's not surprised that people are feeling drained and exhaustion and add to that the very, you know, practical thing, which is that, you know, people have been working longer hours. We've actually been because of this, you know, exhaustion, um, a little less productive per hour and working longer hours to, to keep up our, our, our accountabilities. And that, isn't that kind of like a, uh, like a never ending vicious cycle though, because you're staying up longer, getting up earlier to get the work done that you're not getting done because you're exhausted and you can't concentrate. So you become more exhausted trying to concentrate. Is it like, you know, if I was talking to a patient who was displaying that kind of behavior, I would certainly tell them to step away, take some time, breathe, you know, take a half an hour away from whatever it is you're doing. If it's at work, physical structure, get up and leave the office, go for a walk outside, go to the lunchroom, do something. Um, what are you, what are you telling people? How are you telling people to get past their exhaustion, so to speak? Well, for sure, you have to stop that cycle because you articulated it pretty well. You know, the longer this goes on, the worse it'll be and the harder it is, is to get, get out. And, and I, th- I think we need to understand that there's certain things that we need as human beings. And it's not just efficiency. I think we're going to focus very much on trying to be efficient in the things that we do. So we work and we work, you know, in a, in a very kind of um, ongoing focus, non-break sort of way. And we think that that's helping our productivity, but it damages it in, lo- in the long term. So whether we're, you know, returning to the office, whether we're working from home, we have to think of the, the need for variety. We absolutely have to have uh, social support and social contact, regardless of, of, of where, where you're working. Uh, we have to have some physical movement. Uh, we have to have breaks where we have creative white space. And, and right now, the structure of the way things are don't really build those in. So we have to be intentional about uh, building them in. So we have to stop that cycle in one way or another. And sometimes you can do it by adjusting how you work. Sometimes you need to take a pause and then rethink about how you're going to start a, start up again. Now, is this, is this a phenomenon? Again, is this a phenomenon that you see more related to those that are working virtually from home? Or is this impacting those that are actually getting up and going to their physical space and coming home at the end of the day um, or both? Both in different ways. <clears throat> Much of what we're talking about is really a little bit more acute in terms of that just that that ex- exhaustion, working the extra hours, um, you know, difficulty disconnecting. It's a little bit more of a phenomenon for people who are working from home. And because when you're working from home, you have technology which allows you to be on for 24 hours. Yeah. You have the yeah. you have the capability of working uh, working forever. But those in the off who have, who have not you know, had that experience, those are going into the work site as well. They're also exhausted, but for different reasons. You know, when you think about how it's been going into a work site right now, very often you're, you know, at the very beginning of, of this pandemic and, and up until very recently and, and to a certain extent even now, it was, it was pretty high risk. Like you're dealing with the public, you're dealing with, you know, you know attitudes. So it's not even just the virus, it's the risk of the virus, it's the risk of, you know, people's anger um, and enforcing policies and different protocols and supply chain issues. And, and now, you know, people who are, are, are dealing with the front lines are really suffering because yeah. the population is on edge. You know, people are have a shorter tempers right now. There's more conflict. There's more cynicism. So they're drained, but not for the exact same reasons. Uh, of the 28% of Canadians who are unable to disconnect after their regular work hours, 25% report that this is due to their manager 
continuing to contact them uh, evenings, weekends, and so on. You know, I, I do some coaching for a couple of companies, and one of the things I talk about and, and kind of preach on a daily basis is when you're off, you're off; when you're on, you're on. What do you What are you telling? I know you advise a lot of a lot of employers, and if you're just joining us, I'm talking to Paula Allen. She's the global leader and senior VP of Research and Total Wellbeing at LifeWorks, and you're on the road to recovery here. Um, what are you telling employers? I think that at the end of the day, employers, just like every individual, have to understand how the human mind works and what's important for people's well-being and the need to disconnect, the need to have that space in your life to do other things is, is important. That the always on is draining. And at the end of the day, you're end up you're going to end up having people who are tired, who are less productive, who feel disengaged, who make more errors. So, so as to sort of a, an overall top level, uh, it's important to make sure that people do have that time to regress, rest and refo- refocus. Um, but I also think it's important to really shape how you're communicating because people find that when they get um, you know, an email or, or a note, after hours, you know, there has is research that they actually perceive it as more urgent yeah. than if it was yeah. in hours, yeah. and also very largely perceive it from that is more urgent than it actually is. So, you know, some organizations have have uh, adopted practices where. You know, people can work and send send notes and, you know, clean out their e- email box if they choose to uh, after hours, but they need to be clear that this doesn't need to be attended to after hours. It could be wait till the next day. Just, just because my working hours are X doesn't mean that your working hours have to be. I like that. So we only got a little bit of time. I'm interested in this mental health index. It's, um, by the way, this research, is it available to people if they want to find it somewhere? Is it on your website? Absolutely. Publicly available and always will be. It's on uh, LifeWorks uh, corporate site, so lifeworks.com. And uh, you can type in the search bar mental health index or in any search index, uh, search engine, uh, LifeWorks mental health index. And we have all the reports uh, that we have published since April of 2020. Wow. Uh, so you can see the progression yeah. and we have them in um, uh, different regions. So we have a report with can- can- for Canada, US, UK, Australia, and uh, we are also adding a, a, a pan-Europe report as well as one for Sing- Singapore. Ten and a half. We only got a half a minute left here. Ten and a half. Is that negative ten and a half? Where do we sh- where should we be, Paula? Uh, we should be a positive something. Yeah, what? Okay, <laughs> good. I'm not sure I was reading this right. Yeah, I, I, uh, you're, you're reading it right. Like, okay, so zero is basically we set a benchmark. You know, believe it or not, we were we were actually planning to do this mental health index even before the pandemic, and it just right. happened that we had completed our work uh, right. in, in 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 line with the, when the pandemic started. So we were collecting benchmark information from 2017 to 2019. And the idea is that we wanted to say, okay, this is where we are right now in history. And with, you know, with stigma being addressed with, you know, better technologies around mental health, we're wanting to see this thing go up. We want to, as you see that the the numbers uh, go up in a positive direction so we can track our improvement. Well, lo and behold, we had a pandemic and we had a massive decline. So any negative score is says that we're in a worse place than we were in 2009 and before. So that negative 10 says that we're pretty far from being where we were. And, you know, our objective was actually to be higher. So there's a fair bit of work to do. 
Paul Allen, global leader and senior VP and my friend uh, of research, she's a senior VP of research and total well-being and my friend. Uh, she's yeah. with LifeWorks, uh, LifeWorks.com. Uh, great talking to you, Paula. We'll have you back for sure. And we'll see if we can get closer to zero. You're on the road to recovery. Yonabud, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. Okay, welcome back to the show. You are on the road to recovery. Boy, we're almost finished our first hour and time just flies by. It seems like I just hit my go on my camera, on my on my microphone, and here we are. Anyway, um, we've got so much more stuff to do uh, later on into the show. We'll get there in a minute. But, you know, are you working in an office where somebody or a couple of somebody's bring their little pets, you know, uh, maybe bring their little doggy. So if someone has, you know, anxiety disorder or like I do, or have, you know, other kinds of certain kinds of mental health issues or any kind of special needs, and they have a service dog. Um, I have a little Siggy. He's a service dog. He's a therapy dog. Uh, you know, I don't take him to work with me because I just, don't think it's appropriate. I do take him out on suicide calls, especially for young teenagers. He's he's awesome at disarming them in terms of quieting them down and giving them some reason to stay alive for a few more minutes. So there are places and you know proper opportunities for pets to be in the workforce. But this article goes on to say, dogs in the office, possible. P-A-W, really cute. Pet ownership soared during the pandemic and workplaces are responding to the changing of the change of employees needs got to remember a lot of people got animals when they were locked down because they were home they were able to take care of them it all worked out really well because you know they gave them a a little friend wasn't they weren't so lonely now a lot of people are going back to work and the doggy doesn't or the pets don't understand what that means so you can end up leaving after two years of being at home with your lovely pet, spending all your time walking them and playing with them and cuddling them and feeding them from the table. And sure you do. Don't shake your head and tell me you don't. Of course you do. We all feed our dogs from the table. Come on. Something, hopefully something healthy, but, um, and now you got to go to work and these poor animals are sitting at home going, crying. That was me sounding like a crying dog. They're crying. They're sad. They're anxious. They're depressed. So a lot of people are talking about bringing their animals to work. So in-person work is now back at the G- in GTA offices. Employers are responding to shifting needs uh, in the workplace. A shifting a significant change in the pandemic was that a whopping 10% of Canadians got pets, as we said a little earlier, 20, in, during, from June 2020 to June 2021. 10% of Canadians. Wow. it's a lot of people. To offer compelling incentives to existing workers and prospective employees, more officers are allowing pets, primarily dogs, by the way, into offices. Dogs seem to be an easier pet to bring to work than perhaps others. Um, the pros are simple. It's comforting to have pets in the office and gives owners peace of mind. So you as the owner of the animal benefit. It also attracts more talent to the workplace. It offers a welcoming environment, according to the associate professor at York University School of Human Resource Management. Research shows that over the course of a day, anxiety increases when a pet is left at home. Sure, for the owner and for the animal, right? Now, I think my Siggy, my little guy, he, he, I think, likes it when I leave because he gets to sleep and chill out. And when I come back, he's all excited. Uh, we've been doing that for a while, so he's kind of used to it. It's been four years. It's almost five. Time flies, right? But um, the pros and the cons, the, the cons are also apparent, right? So in an open concept office, there are fewer boundaries. It can be distracting if the pet isn't well-trained or is a little more energetic. It can be difficult for those that are uh, hypo- that have allergies, so pet-free zones need to be created or 
only hypoallergenic, hypoallergenic animals can be allowed, perhaps. You know, there's maybe a way to do that. I don't know. But the animals in a workplace, animals in any place, especially dogs, especially cute, cuddly dogs, like my Siggy, and I'm sure your own, are good for everybody. They, they disarm people. They make you feel more comfortable. They're, they're, they're cuddly. They're like looking at a little baby. You know, looking at babies make, usually makes everybody smile. So one of the third, one third of the people who acquired a pet during the pandemic were first-time pet owners, according to the to the study, and the demographic primarily millennials. So um, Mark Bordeaux, he's the CEO of Vest, Vetster, a veterinarian telehealth platform, says during the pandemic he would come into the office with his dog Riley while employees continued to work from home. Over time, more people started bringing their dogs to the office after strict guidelines were outlined. Well, that's in a veterinary environment. It makes sense. But, you know, if they're coming to work in your law firm or in your factory office, or obviously this works in an office environment much better than it would if you were in a factory or some kind of facility that might not be safe for pets to be walking around. Because the company focuses on pet health, it was a no-brainer for them, right? But it's important to be inclusive of pet parents when you're looking at these opportunities to bring people back to work for them and for the animal. A recent survey from one poll found that six in 10 pet owners of the 3,000 surveyed in North America left a job to find a workplace that was more pet friendly. Who would figure it? I mean, honestly, I'm an older guy. I've been around a long time. I wouldn't have thought that that was a thing, that bringing your animal to work was like a thing, but apparently it's a thing. And seven in 10 pet owners are willing to take a pay cut. Seven in 10 take a pay cut if they can bring their dog to work. 39% 39% having their pets helps them avoid burnout, uh, improves productivity. They get more work done. They, send, they stand, tend to come to work earlier, stay a little longer. Employees can bring their dogs to the office, but flexible hours have to be allowed for walks and trips to the vet and so on. Um, but there's some reg- regulations, right? You got to make sure that the dog doesn't is, is obviously potty trained, that they're not uh, barking. There's what did they say here? There's a, 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 a three a three bark rule at this one particular company. If the bar- dog barks more than three times, it's time to like you know spend a little more time, pay attention to the dog. But you know, having an animal at work, if it helps you get through your day. Maybe it helps others get through their day. And if you're not spending a ton of your time playing with the dog during work, it also gives you less anxiety, creates less anxiety for you to have to worry about rushing home really quickly to make sure that the dogs let out to pee or do whatever they have to do or feed them or walk them and so on. So perks like this are offered to get people back into the office, but then frowned upon or shunned away over time, the experts say. It's definitely reactive to it's reactive to employees not wanting to come back to the office. Uh, experts say that offices should focus on a hybrid model to retain staff. So offering pet-friendly space shouldn't be the only conversation. It's about what employees employers can do to be more supportive of their employees. It shouldn't be, however, that we bring people back to the office and how do we do that? Let's create something, let dogs back. We should be more. It should be more focused on the benefits of having the animals in the in the uh, in the in the office. And the benefits to the employees for bringing them to work. And by the way, th- certain people, such as myself, who have um, you know, therapy animals, have the right to bring them anywhere they want to go if they're proper, if they're properly vetted, and they're properly certified, and so on. So, if I want to go to a restaurant or I want to go to an office and I want to take my doggy, I can. I choose not to, for the most part, because I don't want to put the extra stress on him, and frankly, the extra stress on myself. It makes it more difficult to focus, frankly, for me, because I'm moving around and not sitting in one place. But you know what? It's, it's, I guess, whatever it takes to make people more comfortable. Employers are now realizing 
that there's a lot more to than to employing somebody than how much you're paying them to come to work each day. It, it doesn't seem that the money seems to be enough now, or or even that important, as we read in this article. Some people are prepared to take a pay cut if they have the opportunity to bring their animal to work. And you know, working from home makes it that much easier. But getting back to work for so many people is also a good thing. So there's a real toss-up between going back to the office, which is probably better for you and I in terms of our mental health and well-being. We sent, we tend to do better. We know that we tend to do better with people around us. We tend to do a little bit better when we have interaction and someone to smile at us and say hello and how are you? How was your day? More difficult to do that when you're working virtually, almost impossible for that matter. So there's a combination of it's safer to be at home sometimes. Maybe it's safer to be at work sometimes. A trade-off between the physical exposure of some to somebody who might have COVID now a couple of years into this thing or longer, right? That that's a trade-off, and the trade-off has to be what's good for your head. And do you feel better in the office? Then go to work. To feel better at work at home, you need to talk to your boss about that as well. So pet ownership, I'm all for it. Taking it to work in the right environment makes sense. Think about the animal too. Make sure it's safe for them. Well, we know when we come back, we just finished this first hour. We come back into our second hour here. We got so much more stuff to do. Got a couple of huge guests coming up. Um, huge, not in their size, but the stories that we're telling. Uh, my good friend, Louis March, he's the founder of Zero Gun Violence Movement. He'll be back uh, after the break here. Uh, another friend of ours, our in-house uh, um, expert on cannabis, David Ellison. He's the owner of Scarlet Fire Cannabis Company. We're going to talk about pot and people in the business and what it does for people, how it helps people with uh, mental health issues and so on. So a lot more to do when we come back from break. So go get yourself a drink, go do what you need to do. If you have a smoke, go do it now, get yourself something to eat, get relaxed. So when we come back, we have another hour of more exciting stuff here on the road to recovery. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to road to recovery with Yona Bud only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back here on the road to recovery here with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. Sorry about that quick cut out of the, uh, uh, the last segment here before we got into uh, the news, something here. We had a little technical glitch and sometimes it happens, but we still love you and we're here. So uh, welcome back. If you want to uh, chat with us this evening, 416-870-6400. Love to hear from you. If you're outside our area, 888-225-8255. And uh, we'd be thrilled to chat with you about stuff that we're talking about. Remember, the benefit of this show is that we're helping each other get come through the other side of this, whatever this is. And uh, we do it together. We truly do it together. Um, anyway, progressive, get to the stories here at hand. Progressive conservative uh, Doug Ford, he's uh, shooting down DeLuca's promise to ban handguns in Ontario if the Liberals win this election. So DeLuca's promise to ban handguns, uh, you know, and, and what's, what Ford is saying is I've been very clear on my stance. We've put $185 million in fighting gangs and guns. Okay, we're going to get to that in a minute. That's what we need to do. Continue to invest and support our police. That's uh, that's what his solution is. We know where the guns are coming from. Interesting, interesting statement. Uh, where they're coming from, they're coming illegally across the border. So, frankly, I can tell you about a story not so long ago. We talked about it on the air about a recent uh, robbery of, I think, 40 or 50 guns from a manufacturer in Ontario. That I don't know how many are still on the street. We never heard back about that. It was kind of a hush-hush story. Uh, if anybody out there kind of followed that story of the uh, robbery of uh, the truck full of handguns coming from uh, a place just north here of uh, of Toronto, not too far north of the GTA. And so they're not all coming across the border, Doug. 
And if you know where they are, why aren't we stopping them? And if you're spending all this money on police, what's it doing? And, you know, we watch these people. They go in front of the justice system. Ford goes on to say they get a slap in the wrist, and two days they're out running around the streets again. We need to work collaboratively collaboratively, excuse me, with the federal government to toughen up gun laws. DeLuca accuses Ford of putting the interests of gun lobby ahead of Ontario victims. So it becomes the whole thing becomes a political uh, hodgepodge. The choice of handguns is clear. More handguns and gun crime under the four conservatives or a ban on handguns, according to the liberals. So we're going to hear they're, they're going to use lives and the kind of lives that uh, we're trying to save here uh, as a capital in this political war, this political, uh, not political war, this, this political um, competition, I guess, to see who the next uh, governing person is going to be in Ontario. A province-wide handgun ban would be a step in the right direction, according to John Tory. He says, I believe that the council, the city council is already in position to endorse this and move forward. My two guests this evening are good friends of mine, my two brothers, uh, Louis March, he's the founder of Zero Gun Violence Movement, and Marcel Wilson, the founder of the One by One Movement. Both are individuals that, if you haven't heard them on here with me before, are experts on guns and gangs and violence related to guns and gangs. Uh, they work with youth, uh, families, and all that kind of stuff, and they're the real deal, and they're with us here this evening. My two brothers, welcome. Thank you. Hello, hello, hello. Jonah. Good to be here again. Yeah, I, you know, I, I always keep hoping that I'm going to get you guys on the air. We're going to ca- talk about some magnificent breakthrough that's going to put an end to the stuff we keep talking about for years. I mean, I love you and you're, you know, we're family, but I, you know, I'd like to talk about how well this program is working or this program is working. Uh, I'll start off with you, uh, Marcel, just real quick. Um, the 185 million, any of it working? Like, are we seeing a difference? Are you seeing a difference on the street level? Um, you know, just to, just to be straight. Uh, the answer is no. Um, we're seeing a little, a, a little more of a, a trickle-down sort of happening where some groups are getting um, support and whatnot, but it's still the same struggle. Uh, you know, a lot of these organizations could be spending 100% of their time putting it into community, into individuals, but you'll find that they're spending 60, 50, 70% of their time chasing money in order to keep going and and just help a handful of people. So we we can't use this analysis paralysis kind of thing as an excuse anymore. We we know what the potential solutions are and we know what doesn't work. But we're just seeing the same thing over and over and over. Uh Louis March, founder of Zero Gun Violence Movement and kind of the godfather of all this for all of us here in Toronto. Uh welcome back, brother. Um kind of the same question sort of that I just asked Marcel, you know, um we're, are we, we're spending money. I know that you told me you had, there was something happening with the stakeholders. Uh, your, your term is get all the stakeholders together. I know, which is a big, a big want of yours for a long time and, and, and for, uh, for Marcel as well. Um, has, A is, has that happened? And B, you know, tagging on to Marcel, any, any difference, any change, anything happening with A, the commitment for cash and B, what seems to be a, a hot topic going into the election? I think it's, it's, it's important to recognize the two camps here, the liberals and the conservatives. Doug Ford said he's from the old school. He believes in putting more boots on the ground. So he's going to give money to the police, who has told him before that it's not a policing-only solution. Right. Right? Uh, so the $185 million he's speaking about, not one red cent went to community. 
it all went to policing. He's made it clear. That's where he's from. He's from the old school. Uh, so we're concerned. And then we have the liberals now claiming that they want to ban handguns. And we know that banning the handguns is a one-dimensional response to a multi-dimensional problem. We know that 82% of the handguns found at crime scenes in the city of Toronto are from the border, coming illegally across the border. Right. He's got the wrong target in sight. So there is a political gamemanship taking place to uh, buy votes, to be tough on, to, to, to seem as though they're tough on crime, but in reality is doing nothing to address the real root causes of gun violence. I'm concerned. They're, they're playing yeah, I, with, I, I can hear it in your voice for big time. They're, they're, they're playing with people's lives. They're destroying communities. They're destroying families while they play a political gamemanship. That's right. Mar Mar Marcel, you would think, uh, Marcel Wilson, founder of One by One Movement, um, and, and by the way, One by One Movement are, the, are a, a, crew, a group of mentors, and many of them mentors, uh, many of whom have come from the gang world that are helping young people find their way out of that kind of organized crime and uh, back to school and jobs and stuff. So uh, that's who he is, and uh, yeah. Uh, Marcel, with $185 million, I mean, you're an old gangster. I'm a bit of an old street guy, right? Um, $185 million. You'd think you could put something together to, to kind of figure out a way to catch some of these guns at the border, right? I mean, I, I get putting into policing, policing, policing. But, you know, I think if you and I had 4 or $5 million, we could create a, a good enough sting to grab, you know, a ton of guns coming over the border for the next couple of years. What, what am I missing here? Oh, you're absolutely right, Jonah. And, I mean, you, could, you take 10%. Of that number and, and you invest it into groups that are you know proving their eff efficacy they're actually dealing with the the, the, the you know the, the high profile sort, sort of targets and you'll see a huge difference but I mean yeah. we've we've you know we've consulted I've, I've spoken on the Senate floor we've spoken in the House of Commons a number of times we've consulted with MPs MPP City Council and I mean, it seems all for naught. Like they ask what what the possible solutions are. They want to hear from real people. We bring those people to the table, and it's always the opposite of what their narratives are now. So the message is very clear, and 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 that's from all parties. You know that they don't seem to care about actual solutions. As you said, this is a very politicized topic, and they're going to use the lives of our, of our dead young ones to, to win votes. And I mean, this is the time. There's a chance right here, right now. There, there, there's a proper yeah. budget where you can fund organizations. There, there's groups that are out there willing to put in the work. I mean, all, all that's left is to make the commitment, make the investment. As Louis March says all the time, we need to invest in our communities. It's simple. It's that simple. It's really not rocket science. Uh, Louis, is it time for for a? <laughs> it's a kind of a pun here. It wasn't intended. Louis, is it time for a march? I mean, literally, is it time for a march? Is it time to 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 bring people onto the streets in thousands and make a big noise? Because you know, you guys have been like Marcel said, you've been everywhere. It's not like a, the the political you know politicians aren't at least giving you some kind of time and some kind of lip service. They're just not paying attention. What do we do to make them pay attention, brother? I think that's a good question. That's an excellent question because two two summers ago, 
when we had marches, protests, demonstrations, uh, the politicians seemed to wake up because they were fearing uh, extreme responses from the public because we didn't trust what the, the politicians and the leadership was doing. Uh, defunding the police, uh, anti-black racism, it, it woke up people. But guess what? Everybody's falling back asleep again. Yeah. So maybe but you hear, but, time we do that. But the thing is, right, here, here, here's a trump card. Yeah. All those people that came out and marched two summers ago, if they showed up at the polling stations in political season, there you go. For the Fed and for the city, if they showed up in numbers, there they would scare the hell out of the politicians because these young people are taking this more seriously than the politicians are. If we can mobilize these young ones that came out and marched two summers ago and yeah. had them marching to the polling stations, yeah. everything would change because the politicians know what needs to be done. It's only what is political expedient for them at the time that they choose to do. It's not a priority to them. And Marcel, is, is it concerning for us. So we have to get these kids that marched two summers ago to march to the polling stations. And that will change the landscape dramatically. Marcel, impacting uh, Louis's point, uh, a good one. Mar impacting the the vote. I think if we, you know, if, if we were going to exercise some activity between now and the time the vote comes through, it would be, I think, to do exactly what Louis is saying: putting together protests, marches, uh, making sure that uh, people that are going to the polling station. I have no idea what the numbers are in terms of citizens in Toronto. You know, voting citizens. Uh, how many votes per se are coming out of the communities and neighborhoods and such that uh, we're all talking about, let alone, you know, the neighborhoods that I live in and around the corner. And I mean, there was just a shooting at uh, Jane and uh, Wilson a few minutes ago, one in Brampton earlier today. Like, you know, it's not just, uh, the, you know, the typical quote unquote uh, neighborhoods people think about, but that number of voters has to be pretty significant if we rallied them all together and uh, started to make the, uh, you know, start to make the, the politicians a little nervous about who might get that vote. What do you think? I, I absolutely agree. Um, it's definitely. How do we do it? So how do well, we do it? it that, that's a longer process because there's a distrust in, in our communities. Our mm -hmm. communities have a, a long history of, of people who are not voters typically. Right. right? So right. part of our struggle over the past few years addressing root causes is how to deal with government. And that voting is important, that we got to get out there and make sure the right people are out there championing, championing our, our, our communities. So if we don't get out there and vote, this will just continue to happen. So that in itself is a, is a very difficult task, but something that needs to be done. And I mean, we, I want to state that we warned, Louis, myself, have warned the public years ago that the little safety bubble that everyone was in, this only happens in certain communities to certain people, will change. And it has. And it's rapidly changing. So if that is not enough to get the people who typically vote to maybe reconsider the way that they vote, then I'm not sure. I don't know what else, you know, human lives, what, what else is more valuable? What else can we, can we propagate to get people to come out? You know, in, in our communities, we're starting to see a slight change. You know, people are starting to pay more attention, learn who their local counselors are, local yep, MP, yep. local yep. MPs, because we're assisting in that. So we need more people out there who are working in this capacity, in this space, to continue to help educate people on who's who and what's what and what policies are and what they're promoting. 
I've got less than a minute. I'm going to ask Mar- uh, Louis a real quick question. I need a real quick answer. Then we got to go to break. Uh, any of this money going to survivors of gun violence or their families or like any of this 185 or is it only preventative, not necessarily supportive? So we, w- so Jonah, we work with mothers who have lost children to gun violence. Yeah. In fact, under the conservative government, money going to these families for support have been cut back. Oh, wow. And the money that has been made available now has an expiry date on it. So what we're seeing now is a cutback in services and support to families that are traumatized from their loss, that are still aching and paining, right? And the money going to the police. So we have not seen any increase in funding to families that require support after they've lost uh, children to gun violence. We have not sad, seen one sad, yeah, sad state of affairs, and I just my heart keeps going out to those families. Louis March, founder of Zero Gun Violence Movement. Marcel Wilson, founder of One by One Movement. My two good friends, close friends, my buddies, my brothers. Uh, thank you. It gives you strength that you should continue to do the work that you do. And uh, we'll be right back here uh, on the road to recovery. This is Jonah Bud, six forty, Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on six forty Toronto. So welcome back. You're on the road to recovery. This is Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. A rabbi, a lawyer, and a millennial walk into a cannabis shop. Right? Dot, dot, dot. You can make that into a story, into a joke if you want. Fill in the blanks. Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario, um, they regulate the sale of cannabis in the province, has received more than 2,000 applications for retail store authorizations since 2019. About 1,400 of those have already been approved and open, uh, or improved to open, I'm not sure if they're actually open, including roughly 1,200 in 2021 alone, with close to 500 setting up shop in and around the GTA, whereas most of the owners are typical corporate suits. Uh, there's an interesting profile of three particular guys, one they refer to as the rabbi, one they refer to as the millennial, and my guest this evening, the lawyer. And we're talking to uh, kind of our in-house cannabis expert for our show here, Road to Recovery, uh, David Ellison. He is the proprietor and the founder and creator of Scarlet Fire Cannabis. They are at 3852 Bathurst, Bathurst and almost Wilson. Um, by the way, my go-to when I saw it, send patients and families who need to learn and understand about CBD and THC for the benefit of mental health and such. We're going to get to that in just a second. David uh, was a Bay Street lawyer before opening Scarlet Fire uh, in 2021. Uh, 20 years as a corporate securities guy, actually really smart uh, when it comes to that stuff. And he, wanted, he wanted to make a contribution to the world just rather than making people richer. I don't know. I wish he could make me a little richer. would be good. Just kidding. Um, so he began his practice and, and started dealing with cannabis um, firms and such around 2015. Uh, his new mission is to improve the quality of people's lives with cannabis. Scarlet Fire's nickname for the Scarlet, based after Scarlet Begonias. So if you're a Grateful Dead or a Deadhead, uh, you know what that means, fire on relation to the fire on the mountain tune. Uh, he's a definition of a weed geek, right? He'll even say so, but um, not your typical bud tender. Him and his folks are more like sommeliers. They're actually experts in marijuana. They have things like a display station that shows you different aspects of the weed, the turpines and so on, and um, really are expert at sitting down with people and trying to figure out what marijuana experience are they looking for, whether they just want to get high on a Saturday afternoon or they're trying to make the pain go away. David Ellison, good evening, my friend. How are you, Yona? Thanks for having me back on. I'm awesome, bro. It's um, had a really nice uh, 
24 hours. We'll talk about that sometime <laughs> offline. Uh, but yeah, thanks for joining us, brother. I know you're, you and I are probably one of the few of our friends that's actually still awake at this hour. Um, I really want to, I really, um, first of all, that's, that's, it's an interesting article in the star. Congratulations on being profiled as one of the kind of unique guys, uh, clearly, um, you know, of the three, clearly the most unique guy from my experience of reading it. Uh, but I want to get, we don't have a lot of time, but I want to get to this concept that's really been bugging me since you were on the show last. Um, this whole concept of medical marijuana, medical weed, um, or I refer to sometimes as mediweed. Um, you know, when I first, uh, when this, the licenses for medical users first came out, uh, I began using CBD and, and uh, a little THC in the evening to help with pain and such. Um, but, um, you know, I had a medical card or medical license, and I would get it from my my uh, my medical provider, Broken Coast, in those days. They're now part of a big conglomerate. Um, now, medical users and, re- and, and recreational users, no real differentiation. So what's the point of having a prescription, so to speak? Uh Patients who, or, or people who need cannabis uh, for medicinal purposes, can still have it prescribed by their doctor. Um, there, what, what's uh, the benefit? Uh, there's not much benefit other than cost. Uh, one, you have a doctor's supervision, so that's that's a benefit. But the the cannabis in, in industry is in its infancy, and we're just really learning about it. And doctors are really learning about it. Uh, we promote uh, use of cannabis and, and in particular the use of CBD from a wellness perspective as opposed to a medicinal perspective. Uh, uh, good. All, all of the staff in my store, including myself, are extremely knowledgeable about cannabis and how cannabis interacts with the body and how we can use cannabis to improve our quality of life. Cool. So, um Quickly, you said something that's interesting to me. So if you have a prescription, your weed is cheaper? Uh, it, it is a little bit cheaper. Uh, I, I don't, I, I'm not a medicinal patient myself, uh, right. so I don't purchase medicinally, but, but there is some, some cost advantage, and uh, uh, there's probably some, some tax advantage as well. Any idea if insurance companies, I mean, that was a big question we had years ago. I just kind of dropped it with all the other stuff going on. But any idea if insurance companies uh, support that as part of their extended uh, benefits, like the cost of, I know the government buys, uh, buys cannabis for, uh, you know, uh, soldiers coming back with PTSD, uh, you know, pretty based on their prescription. It's like a real business. I'm sure you heard of it. So is that available, you think, to others at this point, or is that not, not happening? Uh, I've heard people have difficulty making claims to their insurance. Um, I would imagine that the, the policy varies, varies in carrier to carrier and policy to policy. Uh, if you're looking to have uh, reimbursement um, for your medical marijuana, then you should contact your insurance company uh, and, and see if they'll cover it. So um, the... Um my understanding is when a doctor prescribes medical marijuana, medical marijuana for medical benefits, from again from experience of patients and and things that I know for you know from my own experiences, um, the doctor is usually connected with a licensed grower, so it also limits the ability to fill that prescription with you know a greater array of products. So, for example, in your store, there's a greater array of CBD-type products for the patients I send than, let's say, some of the other stores that I might be able to send people to, right? Um, so on, a, on mass, when, the, when doctors are referring somebody to, to a grower, it's, it's, it, it, there must be some 
I guess, financial benefit? I mean, is that really what's happening here at the end of the day? I, I think the average doctor, your average GP that you go to uh, probably isn't connected. They may be connected, but there are um, medical cannabis clinics uh, that some doctors are associated with it. Uh, my understanding is that um, some of these clinics get kickbacks from referring patients. Um, the other problem with the medicinal side is that when you get a prescription, you get a prescription with one LP. Uh, and, and that LP may not have the uh, diversity or array of products that you exactly. need. So, exactly so what point. you want to yeah. find someone who is not associated with any particular LP or any particular grower so that that person can ref can can refer you to the LP and the medical provider uh, that best suits your needs. Uh, just uh, just tuning in, I'm talking to David Ellison. He's the owner of Scarlet Fire Cannabis Store there in Toronto on Bathurst Street, just near Wilson. Uh, you're on the road to recovery, by the way. This is Yona Bud. Um, we're talking about medical marijuana. We're talking about the you know marijuana in general. Um, I want to just slide here. We only got a couple of minutes, so I want to slide over to another subject. Um, edibles. I'm starting to hear from a lot of people, uh, especially 50 and over, who you know aren't smokers, never were smokers, but you know are talking about gummy experiences. Um, not all of them are good experiences. Um, maybe you can educate people and try to explain to them the difference between smoking a joint and chewing a gummy bear. Uh, when, when you smoke a joint, either CBD or THC joint, um, and we'll, we'll use THC for example, uh, when the THC comes in contact with your body, there's a chemical reaction, and it turns into THC uh, uh, hydroxy 9. When you ingest it and it goes through your liver, it's THC hydroxy 11. Uh, and, and so there's a different chemical reaction um, for edibles. I personally don't like edibles because it's a very lethargic feel for me. Uh, 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 edibles affect everybody differently, and every edible affects everybody differently. So, so finding the right edible for you or what works for you is a bit of trial and error. Um, you know, also... The, the, the cannabinoids in the plant or the distillate that's used in the edibles is fat-soluble and we're made of water. So the, the THC or the CBD has to uh, get through your intestinal wall. It, it's it's got to go, yeah. go through your liver. So you're not going to have the same absorption through an edible as you will through smoking and vaping. Now, of course, smoking uh, has long-term ad adverse effects yeah. on, on your lungs and other things. Um, but, but, uh, uh, the other issue with, 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 with gummies is that it's mostly distillate. And when yeah. they extract distillate from the plant, they're yeah. only taking certain cannabinoids. Whereas when you're smoking or you're vaping, you're getting all of the cannabinoids and all of the terpenes. And what yeah. we believe is that there's something called the entourage effect, which is the, the effects of cannabis are produced by all of the compounds working together in the ratio they exist in the plant. Uh, when you, I, 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 I hate to do this, buddy. I got to cut you off. My producers yeah, no in my in my producers in my ear. No, no uh, we're going to have you back again for sure. David Ellison, owner of Scarlet Fire Cannabis. We're talking about edibles. My bottom line is: be careful because you don't know how long it's going to take to get a buzz, and you might eat two thinking it's not working. So uh, we'll uh, we'll be back here in just a minute. We got more stuff to do. Yona Bud, six forty, Toronto.
Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And it's almost 1038 here in Toronto. Do you know where your children are, your loved ones, your animals? If not, you probably should go find them. And if you can't find them, you should call 911 if you think they might be at risk. Because, uh, yeah, that's your job, I think. And if not, you got a real problem, give us a call if you're not getting the success you need at 416-870-6400. And we'll do what we can to get connected and help you in any way that we can. If you want to reach me through the week, any other time when we're not on air, 877-777-5808. You can do that by phone or road to recovery at 640toronto.com. We love hearing from you. If you're feeling a little sad, a little blue, maybe a somewhat suicidal, maybe you're not feeling the greatest right now or know someone who's in that state of mind, 416-408-4357, suicide prevention line, or you can just text them real quick. Four five six four five. So um, yeah, we're gonna keep throwing that out there until things kind of settle down. Harm reduction, reduction advocate, drug user challenges government focus on abstinence in the Canadian press this week. Um, excellent article uh, goes on to talk about uh, this young lady. Uh, she's going to refer to herself as Ophelia Kara. Not really her name and. That's what she's calling herself for the sake of the article. She says, I could feel like I, um, all of the horrible things when they gave me, she she says, when they gave me the IV of hydromorphone, all of the horrible things that I was feeling just went away. She goes on to say, I felt like I could breathe again for the first time in a long time and in some sense for the first time ever. Being introduced to hydromorphone sold under the brand name Dilaudin would change everything for her. While stories of opioid use are often tragic, with thousands of attributable deaths in Canada in recent years, uh, she goes on, Kara goes on to say how they saved her life. So she doesn't, that's not her real name, needless to say. She doesn't want to use her real name for fear that it would threaten her prescription. She lives in Alberta. um, And uh, the the provincial government's um, approach is a recovery-based approach while cutting harm reduction services. So harm reduction services are places where you can go for uh, to use uh, and you know use drugs in a safe environment, uh, perhaps like in in Vancouver. And I, I guess what they're trying to maybe look at here in Alberta is uh, you can get drugs like Dilaudin prescribed for uh, your addiction. In other words, it's a safe way to. To get your buzz on, if you will, for the day, or you're basically not your buzz on, but basically feel better, uh, get your, you know, feel healthier. Using a, you know, a medication that's prescribed by a doctor, it gives you the opioid uh, fix that you need for the day or so, and keeps you off the street and probably not doing, you know, keeping you from doing bad things. So I, I'm 50 50 as whether this is a good approach, but for some, it's the only approach. And as a matter of fact, if you're moving somebody from uh, heroin, let's say, to uh, methadone or suboxone, which are both antagonists, they help people stay off of opioids. They don't get you high, but they do contain a synthetic uh, opioid such that you don't get sick. So it helps a lot with withdrawal. So in between, typically, high, uh, heroin and some one of those drugs, Dilaudin is used short term to help with uh, withdrawal symptoms. It's kind of a step down, if you will from uh, opioids such as oxy and heroin and so on. Um, From an early age, um, she says, I'm very much an addict, but I'm also a recovered, and I'm more mentally healthy now that she's using Dilaudin Dilaudin prescribed by a doctor. From an early age, she faced significant mental health issues like depression and such, continued into into her adult years. She worked in a nightclub, was put on hold, her relationship with a man she loved got was rocky. An unrelated sexual assault landed her in the hospital in the summer last year. 
2020, or two years ago, December 2020, and that's when she received the hydromorphone drip. And after that visit, she, she turned to the street to street drugs, cocaine and fentanyl. She saf- suffered numerous overdoses, of which resulted in a massive seizure she had, actually, leaving her unconscious for over an hour. Um, her dad tried to force her into sobriety, taking her to the clinic, to some small clinic in Mexico. She was there for a period of time. As soon as she got back to Canada, she used instantly. She says, I don't recommend drug use to anyone, but specifically of street drugs. It marked her life, she says, with hospital visits, toxic relationships, and so on. Uh, Calgary's drug use site where staff helped to realize it was an option, safer with drug use without getting sober. So she could be safer while still using while getting sober. So there are opiate antagonists, like we talked about. There are programs in Alberta. There's also programs in Ontario. Uh, there's thousands of people every day that go for methadone and suboxone paid for by our government. Um, safe if they're, if they're on ODSP, for example, on any kind of disability, where a lot of these, unfortunately, a lot of these patients are, uh, their methadone or their suboxone, which is a pill form, um, does something a little different than methadone, but a little neater and easier to use, a little better for mental health too as well. Suboxone is often prescribed to people without drug use, and not often, but often enough. It helps with depression and so on. Um, so it's a safe supply program. So you get a prescription, and you can go and get your, your methadone or go get your Suboxone. You need a prescription for both of those. The same as you would, by the way, if you were getting a prescription for Dilaudin or any other opioid. Um, she, this young lady now, she's the reason that people need to get sober is because they think there's an idea of someone using drugs can't have a balanced life. That's not the case. I'm more productive now than I've ever been, um, and I consider myself in a recovery mode even though I'm taking the Dilaudin. She carries a drug kit including naloxone, uh, sterile equipment, vitamin E for her skin, and contact cards for local agencies uh, and suppliers where she can get safe drug use. And the pins attached to her message says, can't recover if you're dead. That's the comment. We're going to come back here. we got more stuff to do. I think we need to do a better job, frankly, all of us. Uh, medical practitioners as well, figuring out a way to help people that are killing themselves because the pain is so great. When we come back, we're going to tell you something that's nice and smooth and should send you off to a beautiful night's sleep. It's a good, feel-good story, the way I like to end when we can. We'll be right back. Yonabud, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yonabud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the last segment of our show. The bus is almost stopped. We're almost done for the night. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. I want to give a big shout out to my friends Natasha and Heather on our production team for putting our show together tonight. Uh, and a big shout out to my buddy Dennis. I hope he's listening wherever Dennis is right now. And uh, he's a big uh, fan of the show and I'm a fan of his. So just wanted to say, hey, Dennis. And um, just want you all to know you're the greatest audience ever. I really do appreciate you. And uh, we do so much respect the fact that you choose us and we try to do the best we can with the time you give us. So you come back and visit us again. So speaking of visiting, it's a little good segue, right? Feeling blue in today's world, head for the Belgian bluebells. So, you know, I, I, you can't always just travel and go to places because you want to. But if you could, you want to feel good, there's a place just south of Brussels, right? And it's in, it's, they have these bluebells. They're basically beautiful flowers. And the idea of this whole discussion here for the last little bit is there's a way to feel good that probably doesn't cost any real money. You don't have to fly away somewhere to go and look at the flowers and smell the blossoms. There are greenhouses here in Toronto that you can go to. There's one at Lawrence and Don Mills. There's a few around town. Uh, my wife, if she was on, 
she would tell us because she knows where they all are. Just walk around, breathe, smell the flowers, look at the beautiful colors, just look at what's going on, get your mind focused on the petals and the shapes and the size of each one, <sighs> right? Just breathe, relax, enjoy the flowers. Sounds great, right? It is. It works. And they can provide a bomb for the soul in these days of anxiety. It helps keep us together. It takes, if it takes your mind, it takes your mind off all the serious stuff that's going on in the world, according to this expert, Hong Jerzyk of Bergen, Norway. He loves the smell of bluebells and tripping, tripping of all the birds that he smells when he's in his environment where they're able to do that, where they live. But there's no better time now than mid-April for the famed Helebros um, and it's Bluebell Festival, if you're able to go. But if you're not, create a festival for yourself. Take someone you love or a group of someones you love, if you have kids or grandkids or whatever. That'd be awesome. Where are we going? We're going to go look at look at flowers and smell flowers. Oh, I don't really don't want to do that. So maybe I'll tell them, you'll take them up for something real good to eat after, right, and start sharing some, some wealth around these uh, retail operators that are starving out there. Let's see what we can to help them. But nature is medicine for people. It really is. We know there was a, we did a show a few months back about, um, I think it was in BC, where you could get a medical prescription to take time to go for a walk in certain parks, uh, public parks. And I think the government of BC, I'm pretty sure, with if you had a prescription, you could get park passes for free. And doctors are thinking, and they're right, by the way. I'm, I, I'm not a doctor, but I, I definitely have seen the experiences um, enjoyed by those that are dealing with unstable mental health, and then they go out and get outside and get into some nice fresh air and smell some beautiful flowers and listen to the birds. And Yeah, man, doesn't it sound great? It is great. Something you need to do, something we need to do. There are so many things that actually you would see the mental health numbers drop I think significantly, especially amongst uh, older people. So maybe not kids so much. Kids don't have the same patience to uh, to sit through, you know, a, a botanical, you know, tour, so to speak. Um, although there are ways to, to, you know, create fun for them and ask questions, and, you know, do a little test after, and then you reward them with something really cool, right? Um, but for us, you know, for you and me out there. Going for a walk in one of these botanical gardens, whether it's you know summertime when you can actually do it outside or indoors when you can do them indoors in some of the some of the greenhouses, dude, it like makes a big difference because it slows your roll, right? Slows you down, makes you start to really appreciate just simple stuff around you, and you don't focus so much on the parking spaces and getting the kids ready for school or where you got to go to work tomorrow or getting your taxes done. Oh my gosh, how many people are freaking out trying to get their taxes done? You know what? So it gets a couple of days late. The government understands it's a pandemic, right? Slow your roll. I had a phone call not long ago from CRA. They wanted to ask me some questions about something, and it sounded like a really complicated question. And I told the guy, listen, I have an anxiety disorder, and this is really bugging me right now. And what he said to me, no problem, Mr. Bud. I'll call you another time, and I'll note it in your file. And then the guy called me back about two weeks later. I think I might have shared this before. A guy called me back about two weeks later. And says, is it a good time to talk, Mr. Butt? Or should I call you back another time? So let people know that, you know what? I'm going to be a couple minutes late or whatever. So who cares? Right? A couple days late for filing this or filing that. I know it's horrible advice. I'm obviously not a financial advisor or a banker. I'm more concerned about you and how you get through the day. 
and how you get through the night. And we're rushing for so many people in our lives all the time. We have such a hard time as a community, as a society, saying no. And when we don't say no, we end up going, oh, my God, what did I commit myself to? And then you're stuck in the mess. So get out to the flowers, the birds, the trees, the parks, the benches. Get out and walk and smell and breathe. That breathing is such a, you know, somebody says, my anxiety is so mad, I can't, I can't stand it. I just need to go get high and I just need. No, man, you don't need to go get high. Sit down with me. Let's breathe. So using breathing techniques, but outdoors. Meditation techniques outdoors. I know it was you know, a nice day today. Tomorrow's going to be a little rainy, apparently, but it's starting to get nice. Sooner or later, not too far distant future, it's going to be nice outside, nice and warm and cozy. Go take a blanket, go sit down somewhere under a tree or in the shade, out of the shade. If you want the sun, don't want the sun. And just breathe and chill and relax and enjoy the space around you and just take that rush and hustle out of your life. For just a little while. doesn't take long. You can have a really, really crazy busy day and 20 minutes, a half an hour of reset. I think I like to tell my patients in particular, I like to tell people during the day, you sort of start your day with a reset, just getting yourself together with meditation, breathing, you know, kind of getting your day in sync, getting you in sync, ready for the day around lunchtime. Make sure you have like something to eat, a sandwich or something, you know, and then spend 20 minutes of your lunch just breathing four by four in through your nose, you know, in through your nose for the count of four and hold it for the count of four and blowing it out for the count of four. You do that for five minutes, close your eyes, listen to the birds, feel the sunshine. I promise, you go back to work in the afternoon, you're going to feel so much better. And then at the end of the day, beep, 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 the horn goes or the buzzer goes, work is over. Yeah, I know none of us work in that environment where there's a buzzer that says, or at least I don't work in an environment where the buzzer goes off. Maybe some of you do, but in your head, the buzzer goes off perhaps. That's the time to reset again, either on the way home, listening to quiet music, listening to podcasts that are soothing, not getting uptight with the traffic, coming into the house, relaxing, breathing, meditating for a few minutes, and then have your meal. It'll taste so much better. Life will be so much better. So my dear friends, slow your roll. Do what you got to do. Slow down. Get out there. Smell the flowers. Listen to the birds. Enjoy nature. It's fabulous. It's magnificent. And it makes us healthy. Like my mom used to say, may she rest in peace. If you don't have something nice to say to someone, don't say anything at all. Get out there this week and spread nice. I'm Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone. And for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.